This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening and welcome to Rand. I'm Navina Ponasami, the Executive Director of Development at Rand. It's a pleasure to introduce our speaker. Linda Robinson is a senior international policy analyst at RAND. Her current research centers on defense strategy and planning, political and post-conflict transitions, building partner capacity, and special operations forces. She is the author of several publications on these topics, and her most recent book, 100 Victories, Special Ops and the Future of American Warfare, was published in paperback earlier this year. Good evening. I'm so pleased to be here with you. I I live in Washington, so I take any opportunity I can get to come out to the West Coast and Santa Monica's Rand office two blocks from the beach. (laughs) So what I thought I would do, I'm going to speak to you, but my real interest is in the dialogue and uh, to get to questions and comments that you may have about my topic tonight. So what I'd like to do is first speak to you about a RAND report that we just published in October uh, that was a, a group product. I was the lead author, and it was examining what have we learned or what should we learn from these 13 years of war. Uh, very, uh, important, uh, to understand where we've been, uh, so that we can avoid some of the errors of the past and preserve some of the things we've figured out to, Uh, how to do correctly. Then I'm going to uh, pivot to focus on one of the specific issues in the report, which is the rise of special operations forces. Uh, They have been Uh, We've been through a period of unprecedented expansion and reliance on special operations forces. Uh, So that is what I will spend the bulk of my time uh, describing to you some of my research and observations. And then finally, I'll wind up with a few comments about what this means for the way ahead. And of course, uh, we're, we're currently grappling with what to do with regard to ISIL, Iraq and Syria, Uh, and the rise of a new, uh, fairly uh, lethal movement there. So I will welcome your comments on any aspect, and indeed anything uh, in the news that is related to these topics, I'm happy to engage with you. The uh, report was done by gathering a high-level group of policymakers, uh, interagency experts, and strategists. We felt that it was very important to get a cross-section of people who had been really uh, at the high levels of decision-making over these last 13 years so that they could walk through and look back at some of the junctures, the decision-making that had occurred, uh, and in a dispassionate way, begin to try uh, to understand uh, where, where the critical turns were and what we might do differently. And I'm just going to really summarize what is a lengthy report, 121 pages, uh, with the seven observations or lessons that we drew out of this extensive process. You have, uh, I believe on the way in, there were copies of the report as well as a four-page synopsis. So I'm really going to give you kind of a wave top here of what's a very in-depth report. The first lesson 
or observation that we came up with is that there's really an insufficient understanding of an application of strategic art. Uh, and this is something that because you're elected uh, to office or appointed to office, you don't necessarily have a grasp of strategy. Uh, people who come into office don't uh, come equipped with having read Lawrence Friedman's book or Sir Hugh Strawn's book or have that kind of strategic education. And we looked at the key decisions. Many of them have been written about extensively, but we looked at the decision to go to war in Iraq, the decision to do the troop surge in Iraq, the decision to do the troop surge in Afghanistan, and the counterterrorism policy and the way it's been executed uh, over these last 13 years. And what we found was uh, very often the process, there was a, not a deliberative process applied. Uh, and that may sound um, v- like a very dry observation, but process and education were the two key findings uh, at this level that we derived. You need to have an adaptive process because you're not going to understand the problem at the outset. It's really a learning exercise for the policymakers. We also found that civilians in the military have entirely different conceptions of what strategy is and how to practice it. So there are a number of recommendations there for how to bring these two key parts of government together. And including, there may be, uh, there are some models from the past about how the National Security Council should operate, both from the Eisenhower era and the George Herbert Walker Bush uh, era, that may be uh, useful models for the future. Many of the policymakers that we interviewed uh, described a process that has become increasingly mired in uh, tactical details. Uh, Some of this has come out in the memoirs that have been uh, published recently, uh, but increasingly you have high-level officials spending their time on the minutia rather than being able to maintain that strategic focus. Uh, I will go a little more quickly through the the other lessons, but I think I I can briefly describe to you the nature of the observation, and if you wish to come back to it, we can. Um, we in in terms of process, uh, there is currently no mandated process for civilians and military to develop strategy together. Uh, there had been previously a presidential decision directive mandating such a process, but none exists now. We found that there was an insufficient understanding that military campaigns need to be based on a political strategy. Uh, and that sounds like kind of a bumper sticker, but just to add some flesh to that, for example, the need to reach an understanding or condominium between Sunni and Shia in Iraq absolutely fundamental to a successful outcome there. Uh, In the case of Afghanistan, the Pashtun and the Tajik and the many tribes uh, that are the subgroups of those two must have uh, a power-sharing arrangement, if you will, if there is to be a stable uh, outcome there. And of course, understanding these things requires sociocultural, political, and historical knowledge. And what we found is there's kind of a tendency uh, within American culture and within uh, the military to look for technology to be the solution uh, and a lack, a tendency uh, not to invest in that kind of social science knowledge that is critical to getting your uh, arms around whatever country uh, or region you happen to be in. We also found, and this was one of the footstop stomp points of which there was wide agreement among all of the policymakers that we gathered, which is really 
interventions should not be conducted without planning and preparing to conduct those follow-on stability operations, capacity building, and transition out to a civilian government. Again, it sounds like a no-brainer, but Libya was conducted without such a follow-on plan, and it is currently in the grip of a completely anarchic situation. The the other finding uh, that I think is hopefully fairly transparent uh, without a great deal of uh, uh, elaboration, the military cannot do these tasks alone. They absolutely must have civilians along with them. And after the Cold War, both the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development were hugely uh, defunded. And that is still the case. Uh, so if I would say there's one thing for you all to write your congressman about, it is the need to support those tools of government, not just the military, but their civilian partners. In addition, there are critical um, areas of expertise that our multinational uh, partners and friends have, and these were leveraged in important ways in both Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as more recently with the French, for example, taking the lead in Mali. So I think always looking to to understanding what expertise is out there that is not necessarily U.S. expertise and having more exposure uh, on the part of both our uniformed and civilian personnel to make it easy for them to integrate with and work with uh, forces and governments of other countries. The final observation was that in lieu of the large-scale interventions Shaping influence and unconventional operations can very often accomplish cost-effective outcomes that adequately address U.S. security concerns. So this is really the big enchilada. Can we find security solutions that do not involve 100,000, 200,000 armed forces at great expense being deployed abroad? So with that, I'm going to pivot now to talk a bit more about the special operations forces who are a key element of this approach uh, that I think is kind of painfully coming into view uh, in these uh, last years, but still requires a lot of thought and work for it to become an actual refined approach to U.S. national security. So I'd like to uh, call for the next slide. I'm not killing you with PowerPoint. This one is just pictures, but it's going to enable me to uh, talk through some of my experiences in, in the field observing uh, and writing about the Special Operations Forces. Uh, I first have a few data points to offer you. Uh, I call it my soft 101 uh, blurb. So I can describe to you the evolution that U.S. Special Operations Forces have undergone in the last 13 years. Uh, they have grown enormously. Uh, their budget has more than quadrupled although they are still a very small part of the overall defense budget. If you count all the uh, support given to them in their own budget, it's still only 4% of the total uh, defense budget. The um, operational tempo has uh, tripled, uh, and I will talk uh, extensively about the types of operations they've been engaged in. And the personnel has grown. The number of personnel, military and civilian, assigned to the U.S. Special Operations Command, which is the umbrella parent command, was 47,000. It's now 66,000 on its way to growing to 69,000. 
Now, of those, so don't run to the store and say there are 69,000 special operators. Those involve support personnel and, as I said, civilian uh, uh, admin uh, people supporting, supporting them, equipment purchases, and so forth. The badged uniformed special operators currently number about 33,000. That is still much larger than any other country's special operations forces. Uh, what you will generally find with the European uh, SOF or special operations forces is small commando-style units in the low thousands. Uh, in some cases, they're even smaller. So these, the operational tempo, as I mentioned, has been extremely high over the last 13 years. Uh, the average was about 12,000 of them deployed at any one time to a mix of 77 countries. Now, a lot of times people will hear that statistic and think, my heavens, 77 countries. But that includes a wide spectrum. The lion's share, of course, have been empl- uh, deployed first in uh, Iraq, then Afghanistan, uh, and now uh, we're having another uh, increase back into Iraq, but much, and that was on the order of around 5,000, uh, uh, five to 7,000. So smaller numbers, uh, in the hundreds, uh, and sometimes just onesies and twosies out in an embassy, uh, to help a country team. So it encompasses a wide, uh, gamut. What do they do? Officially, their mission span counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, Foreign internal defense, which is this capacity building, helping that country take care of its problem. Unconventional warfare, which is what they did by partnering with the Taliban, um, excuse me, partnering with the Northern Alliance to take down the Taliban right after 9-11. So unconventional warfare is helping a resistance movement overthrow an occupying uh, force. Uh, and then there's counter uh, weapons of mass destruction. They have very unique render safe uh, missions for uh, nuclear uh, weapons and, and biochemical weapons. Um, a couple of quick more uh, tidbits about the special operations forces. The Navy SEALs have done a great job with their image and publicity. They are, in fact, a very small portion uh, of the total force. The Combined with their special warfare combat crewmen, the boat guys, they total 9,000 of that 33,000. Uh, so they're actually a very small part, as are the Ranger Regiment, only about 3,000 of them. The lion's share of them are the special forces, the Army special forces, also called Green Berets for their headgear. There are also civil affairs, PSYOP, psychological operations soldiers, aviation units, uh, and the aviation units in, uh, include both helicopter and uh, plane and now drone or, or UAV pilots, but also special tactics personnel. And these are very critical uh, guys who are sent out in onesies and twosies down with the team on the ground, a 12-man special forces team or a SEAL platoon. And they are the ones that are the most highly trained in calling in airstrikes or having the overhead uh, protection, whether it's UAV or close air support. Uh, So they often are operating on the ground in a blended fashion. 
There's also the newest member of the family is the Marine Special Operations, which in 2006 became the first, uh, became uh, officially part of the U.S. Special Operations Command, kind of kicking and screaming, not not happy to do it. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld said, no, you're going to do it. Now they've made a commitment and they actually allow the Marine, enlisted Marines to serve out a career uh, in that MARSOC unit. Uh, so it does appear that they, they are committed committed to uh, remaining part of the family. So what I'd like to do is give you a little tour uh, with my my uh, picture show here. Up in the uh, far left corner there, this is um, one of the special forces teams I was with in the very early days of Iraq. Um, you can see me sort of hiding there by the hood uh, of the car. And this, this was outside the... Um, Southern uh, South Oil Company uh, in near Basra in in southern Iraq, and they were actually flying a small handheld UAV at that moment, trying to determine if uh, the oil installation was being held by Iraqi forces and whether they were going to get into uh, a firefight or what they were going to find when they entered. So this picture kind of represents this the largest soft deployment since Vietnam. Uh, the Afghanistan post-9-11 mission was quite small. 300 went in, p- married up with the, paired with the CIA, uh, and then they found linked up with their Northern Alliance um, uh, um, partners up in Afghanistan, and the Taliban uh, was quickly routed um, in a matter of weeks. In the case of Iraq, This was an enormous deployment of special operations together, embedded in and around conventional forces in a way they had never been before. And this actually created some near fratricide moments because in those early days, the the two sides were not, U.S. conventional forces and U.S. special operations forces were not used to communicating. And we were out there running around in a marine area of operations and and with uh, some Iraqi partners, because they had this indigenous force with them that they were using to go uh, and clear and gather intelligence and so forth. And we nearly got mowed down a few times. So it was very graphically clear to me the lack of communication that existed in those early days. They did a wide variety of things, clearing waterways, countering the Saddam Fedayeen, as I mentioned, leading these expat Iraqi forces in the north. They tied down 11 divisions of Saddam's army with the Kurdish Peshmerga. So it was a very critical piece of the uh, initial operation uh, that allowed U.S. forces to go uh, fairly speedily into uh, Baghdad. Uh, and topple that regime. Uh, In the West, they did a number of missions, seizing airfields, hunting for scuds, uh, did a lot of flipping of the Iraqi military at that point that were ready to turn in uh, their weapons. And then, of course, the counterterrorism force was spread out all over the country looking for the WMD that didn't exist and going after the so-called deck of cards, the high-value targets. So so this was really the early high point of that uh, deployment. And as the years went on in Iraq, they the uh, special forces developed 
the most proficient element of the Iraqi military, which was the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, and also a number of very proficient SWAT-style uh, teams. Uh, they also, by virtue of being out and about so much, because that is how they operate, they're out and about uh, in their one, two, and three Humvee configurations, uh, talking to the population all the time, they generated the most battlefield human intelligence um, of any unit. And the CT force, if some of you may have read Stanley McChrystal's book. It gives a very detailed description of the machine that he built uh, that really, I think enough credit should be given to the intelligence analysts that were placed out there forward with them, as, as well as the intelligence technologies that were developed to rapidly process uh, intelligence picked up on each site so that at the end they were they were running 17 and 18 raids a night. So it really became a very proficient uh, machine. And as I described, gradually they got better at deconflicting with the conventional forces. This was probably the most painful uh, thing to to the learning curve that they went through uh, because very often the conventional forces would wake up in the morning and they would find a raid had occurred overnight and the local uh, uh, mayor or district chief would was taken in the night or, you know, something had happened. There had been some some damage that had occurred and they were up in arms. So the conventional forces would have to placate the locals while trying to figure out what had happened. And had they taken the right guy, they'd taken the wrong guy. So over time, this became much, much better uh, married, married up and the two began working uh, together better. I mentioned on the upper right hand, this is a picture of the Iraqi uh, special operations forces and they have uh, the U.S. Special Operations Forces along with them, but they really learned how to process their own intelligence, plan their own raids, uh, and go out and conduct operations. Uh, now, as you all know, and we'll probably get into it in the in the question and answer, the fatal flaw there, though, was they did not prevent, and indeed uh, were party to a mistake, which was this unit wound up reporting directly to Nuri al-Maliki. So it became a sectarian tool for him. Uh, and that was tragic because the unit itself was a mixed unit. A Kurd, Sunni, Shia, very professional. Now the question, and what they're trying to do now, is, is shore up that unit. They still have some of the good leaders there. In fact, they were the ones holed up in the Beji refinery uh, for, for many weeks, holding out. Uh, there. They've suffered a lot of casualties. So that's going to be one of the reads they're going to be trying to uh, strengthen as they go forward. I'd like to talk now a little bit about those last, the two bottom uh, slides. On the left-hand side there, those are actually French paratroopers, French SOF, uh, Special Operations Forces, about to board a Polish uh, plane that actually is uh, landing on a little gravel airstrip that I, I had just gotten off of that um, uh, plane, and it's out in a province called Kunar, right in the border with with Pakistan, a very critical um, area. And these uh, French had been coming to talk to the U.S. SOF about how they were partnering with the locals and raising this local force called Afghan Local Police. And the Afghan Local Police wound up being 26,000 strong. Um, uh, and this was a critical element in pacifying, securing local villages. So it was the local guys 
overseen by their elders with help from the special operations forces. And that was the main subject of my uh, book that uh, came out in paperback this October. And it was the largest such experiment they'd undertaken of that sort since Vietnam, uh, where they built the civilian irregular defense group that was about 50,000 strong when they finished that. Uh, And this was a little... Um, little noticed uh, development that really did uh, qu- quite a lot to pacify the countryside. And I should just say as a footnote, Rand had a role. I was not with Rand then, but I met a number of Rand researchers out there trying to help doing some of the design of this program and the tribal mapping and so forth. The elements of the program that really led uh, to a pretty sophisticated um, approach to using indigenous forces. Early in the war, it was, let's go round up some indige, they would say, and go hit some targets. So it was a very kind of expedient approach to partnering with locals. This was a, this was a program designed to last because if they were young men from that village and overseen by their elders, the chances were they were committed to that area, to the defense of that area, and would stay on and do their job uh, once uh, the U.S. had pulled out. And of course, we're now in the process of seeing whether that's going to hold and in what areas it will hold. I am I'm moderately optimistic. I was speaking with some of you earlier about this. I think I think that Afghanistan, if the U.S. Congress uh, can continue to honor the aid commitments that have been made at a succession of international conferences, uh, that Afghanistan will will in fact see see its way through uh, the the unit on the right or the individual on the right, these are two Afghan commandos. And as in Iraq, the U.S. Special Operations Forces devoted a great deal of time to uh, building, nurturing, training, advising Afghan Special Operations Forces, and indeed a number of other units. But they really devoted uh, the bulk of their time to creating units, in effect, in their own image uh, that would uh, be able to stay on and uh, continue uh, securing the country. Their, uh, their little animal, they have a monkey they uh, made a pet, a mascot out of. And this is what I found through these years of, of being out in the field is a unit will inevitably pick up a stray dog, a you know, a monkey, some kind of pet as a mascot. Uh, they have to do something in their downtime and, and pets are often um, often around. So what I'd like to do is come away from the two big wars and just give you a quick tour of the horizon. The um, I just came from the Philippines in October where they are winding down a 14-year effort to help the Philippine Army and its special operations units uh, pacify the southern area, the Muslim-dominated Mindanao area. And that has been a non-combat mission that has been entirely in support of the Filipinos. They have had the right through the terms of reference or the rules of engagement to defend themselves if attacked, and they've had the ability to go out and provide uh, ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance with the units and advise down to the battalion and in some cases company level. It's really the model that many people say. I know the president in his recent speech mentioned Yemen and Somalia. The Philippines represents the model of this new way. 600 um, 
special operations forces, 600 U.S. troops. That was the agreed limit of what was going to be down in the southern Philippines. What was the secret? Well, they stayed there. It was a 14-year effort. Uh, They worked with a variety of military units. They didn't just focus on a CT unit or a soft unit. They advised a whole range to include uh, building a special police unit and to include, together with USAID, heavy focus on civil military operations. In fact, that was really their main ammunition, uh, was going out and engaging the population. Long history of neglect of this area. Um, They are in the process now of negotiating um, a, a what many hope will be a final uh, peace accord with the uh, Moro Islamic uh, Liberation Front, and that involves a degree of autonomy that the South has not achieved before. So people are hoping. I talked to you before about the political end game and the political strategy. People are hoping that this will really be uh, the end game, and this is one that's being led by the Philippines with the U.S. in support. I mentioned Yemen. Of course, we've had some assistance to Yemeni forces there, very heavy CT focus, unilateral CT focus. Uh, Colombia is the other one that more mirrors the Philippine case. A small number of special operations forces there. I've spent a lot of time down in uh, Colombia, uh, both with the FARC, the insurgency, the government, and U.S. SOF. And by working together in support of the Colombian government, uh, they are in the process of uh, peace negotiations that I think will likely succeed. And an almost 50-year insurgency uh, will likely um, reach a, a successful conclusion. The um, Horn of Africa, a little bit mixed there, but there have been special operators helping with uh, Somalia was the poster child of a failed state. Uh, there is still a significant problem with Shabab, but for the first time there is a government there. The question for the U.S. is, are they going to support uh, an effort to build a Somali national army and support the construction of an, a, a functioning government? Uh, and I know that nation building is kind of a dirty word, now, uh, as is counterinsurgency, but if we can find the strategic patience to provide a modest amount of aid and support, Somalia could actually turn around uh, to to become a functioning country once again. Uh, we have Mali uh, as well in Northwest Africa, which is of great concern to special operations forces, uh, the Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is the particular uh, group there of of concern, uh, and then I'll just end on uh, one uh, note: the um, NATO Special Operations Forces have spent much of this last decade forming a command that they believe, and it's now validated as a deployable command. And part of what I see in the future is non-U.S.-led operations that we may support. And this is a very important development that, uh, and what Admiral uh, Bill McRaven, who was the previous Special Operations uh, Command 
uh, four-star, he was the one that initiated this project of building up the NATO soft headquarters and supported it uh, for many for many years. He championed this and had this idea that there's now this global soft network, and many of them can take the lead in some of these areas uh, and take some of the pressure off of the U.S. to be the 911 force. I will leave it here, and we can talk about ISIL in Iraq and Syria if you want in the Q&A, uh, but I'm really very eager to, to engage on whatever topics are of interest to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. If you have any questions, please let me or my colleague know. Raise your hand, and we'll come right over to you. Hi, uh, Tali Besson. Uh, you said the uh, percentage of the DOD budget is now 4% for special operations. That is uh, with all their support. What do you think it'll be in 10 years, and what do you think it should be in 10 years? Excellent question. And I, I appreciate it because really I think this, these uh, details do matter. Uh, the budget that is allotted to special operations forces is actually about 2%. But when you include, for example, the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, pay the salaries and benefits of the individual operators. So that actually represents a, a substantial um, contribution from the services to uh, the soft enterprise. I actually believe it will be roughly, I think they have grown to the maximum they can. And in fact, with sequestration, and we, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen to the defense budget, but I firmly believe this is about the right proportion. And I'll tell you why. These uh, special operators are recruited from the conventional force. And they have these very high standards. It's extraordinary. My first uh, book, Masters of Chaos, goes into some of the uh, rigorous uh, selection process that they have to go through. And keeping those standards high are critical so you maintain uh, that elite status and the ability to do the things that are asked of them. And they need to be the mature soldiers, the people that have had experience, learned the basic infantry uh, and military skills, and then you layer on top of that uh, the, the special training. So I I believe they will always remain a proportion. I know there are a lot of people that want more. They think they are the elixir or the panacea. Uh, and the overuse of soft is something that people are very concerned about. Uh, there are many uh, capacity building missions that conventional forces can do. The real thing you should look for, if you want to see if they're being misused or overused, the question is, are they deployed in hostile enemy-held areas, contested areas, or politically sensitive areas. Those are really the three uh, tests for when soft should be used. If it's a more benign uh, environment, they can be used. In the case of Afghanistan and building the local police forces, you had small teams out in the middle of nowhere. They actually had infantry squads assigned to them to help provide them support. And that was a very important soft conventional force uh, experiment that the Army didn't particularly like, but I think is very important if we're going to make this small footprint approach work, is have these intelligent blending of the two forces. I have a question to the speakers, right? Hi, yes. I'm curious to know your take on this CIA report that was released this week. Thank you. No, we were speaking about that before, and I, I have to say, I, I know a variety of people been involved and people been on different sides of this and I'm giving you my my view and I will just 
footnote, read Senator Carl Levin's statement that he put out, because I think it's a very eloquent, and I'm, I'm not a partisan person, but I think it's a very eloquent uh, statement of the need to have that report out, the need to learn that damages our image uh, more than anything. I think that the effects of practices that we would not want uh, visited on our own troops. And Chairman uh, General Dick Myers, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time, was very opposed to it because he said, this is this is going to come back to bite us. So that is my position. I think having it out is good. And of course, it, it can, in the short term, heighten the risk. But over the long haul, uh, I think that is one of the great things about this country, right, is we do our lessons and look at, back at what we've done. And we try to reach a decision uh, of admitting errors where we feel they've occurred. I know we have a lot of questions, so I will be brief so we can get to everyone. Good. I have a question here in the front. Well, I'll try to make it a question. Uh, I was very impressed uh, by your opening remarks about strategy or, or lack thereof. And getting back to the topic of your talk, what have we learned from 13 years of war? And I'm curious to know your comments about Colonel Basevich's book, Limits of Power, in this era of asymmetrical warfare. Are we still fighting the old wars with a large military first before we yeah. understand what we're getting into? Yeah. Yes. I, I think there is – I would say this country has more of a consensus than sometimes appears, which is we, we truly want to avoid a repeat of 100,000-plus combat troops in a country at the expense that we've gone to with the results that we have had. That return on investment was not uh, adequate. And there by almost ipso facto are problems with strategy if that's your your return on that investment, I think. I uh I realized I mistitled my last book because it's called 100 Victories, but if you look at the first page of it, it's a Sun Tzu quote. Uh, and it says the acme of skill is not to win 100 victories in 100 battles, but to subdue the enemy without fighting. So what is the point here? We're trying to figure out how to win without fighting, right? And hence my comment before about rent your congressman and please ensure the State Department and USAID are adequately funded and have good models for how to develop uh, help develop countries. So, so there's a lot of work to be done, I think, on that side of the house. And I... These views, you would be shocked to find how widely they are held within the special operations community and within the military community. Uh, so I do think there's actually um, a very strong uh, consensus to do this. What I think I, we, we found, it was very interesting as we got into this, the, the military is taught in their doctrine, and they have you know a lot of very formal training, and they're taught to expect a policymaking and strategy-making process that's very linear. The policymaker is going to give them the objectives, the end states, and then they go away and they align ends, ways, and means and come back and say, here's your best option. Well, what if the president doesn't want that option? Then you've got all this friction and he's trying to gain the president and all of these things. And what needs to happen is the military needs to understand it's a very iterative process and there needs to be trust uh, between the two sides that they're going to engage in this collaborative and iterative process to figure out the problem and figure out the best strategy at a price the president, who is the decider, is willing to pay. Uh, and then go about enlisting the public and congressional support. So again, it's not rocket science, but we have to really recognize there is a process that produces best policy 
and the education that's required. I just outlined what's wrong with the military's approach to it. Civilians, top policymakers, don't get any education whatsoever. And uh, some of you may remember Ike Skelton, who's no longer uh, in the House, but he had tried to champion a bill that actually required that civilian policymakers in these positions receive a strategic education. Earlier, you talked about being more tactical instead of strategic in terms of the leadership. In the recent resignation of the Secretary of Defense, they had talked about the fact that that the White House was far too tactical involved in defense. Can you comment on that? I will give you one example that I think sadly says a lot. There were 40-40 meetings at the principal deputy and in uh, IPC level to reach a decision uh, not to have 10,000 troops stay on in Afghanistan, but to have 9,800 troops in Afghanistan. Something's wrong with the process. I have a question to the speakers, right? Um, yes, this is just a, actually is a little bit further to your point about, about education. I was wondering, because you see it's, it's kind of disturbing. You watch so many political leaders nowadays drop the, the term special forces as if it's a magic bullet that, you know, we'll just call in the special forces. We'll just answer this with special forces. Um, I'm fortunate to, to know somebody that has served with that group who's afraid that, you know, because of these spectacular victories, um, we don't, we don't have a version of the bin Laden raid where no one came back alive that would cause people to pause before they say that. Do you, do you see it being something that's catastrophic that con- ultimately leads to people kind of you know, becoming more educated from the, between the political and, and special forces, you know, divides? Yes. I'm very grateful to you for that question because it is so important. And a, um, um, former, um, head of SEAL Team 6 actually told me, he said, I am very worried that we're at this zero tolerance, uh, moment. Not only that there's zero tolerance for any failed special operations raid, but also zero tolerance for any terrorist attack on the U.S. Um, and, and I, I think that was a very important and sober, uh, statement to make. Now, we also have the op tempo problem, the operational tempo that we've been asking of special operators. And the, uh, former, uh, SOCOM, uh, head, Air, Admiral Eric Olson, very astute, very quiet guy, but he was the one that's, stood up and said, we're burning out our operators. Uh, the amount of uh, divorces uh, and the, all the signs of that fraying of the force, he called it, were there. Um, and there's a limit. All of these, guy, all of these guys have been deployed uh, 10 times uh, for, for uh, you know, they're, they're burned out. So we have to be careful and judicious about how we're using them. And then the latest, and I'm sure someone's going to ask me about this, but we were going, right, so you go on a raid, you're told to go rescue that hostage, you fail, they're on alert. They then say, we've got 72 hours, we're going to kill this guy. They know you're coming, okay? They know you're coming. Um, and I, I was a journalist for almost 20 years, and I went to all kinds of hairy places, and I never expected SEAL Team 6 to come after me. And I think we have to be really... We have to see how this is starting to drive policy and, and incur risks that we, we need to think twice about. Um, the importance of intelligence and intelligence gathering. It isn't just the CIA that does that. It's all the elements that you've been discussing. Question. With the use of drones, we kill the opportunity to gain intelligence from the person who was killed. Previously, we would capture and then bring them to Guantanamo 
and whatever purpose, whatever uses that were put to them, we did gain some intelligence despite Senator Feinstein. So I'd like to ask your opinion about the use of drones versus uh, human intelligence gathering. I agree uh, absolutely with you, and I've actually written, I've testified to Congress, I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs called Beyond Kill and Capture, a number of places I have um, spelled out that argument. I think there are two, really. One is you don't get that uh, intelligence uh, that you, that is vital to this entire enterprise. But there are also a number of political and diplomatic count effects that are counterproductive. And I just think we need to not look at it as the antiseptic sort of narrow. If we just get rid of a collection of individuals we have secured our national security. I think that's a wrong way of looking at the problem. I think that the problem is in a collection of individuals, more of which can always be recruited and and created. Now, the intelligence gathering, and I do, I appreciate, I'll just say one more quick thing. Everybody has been involved in the intelligence enterprise, uh, and it is critical to have human intelligence, not just the technical intelligence. I had a, was out in, in Jalalabad, and the special operator drew a, a um, diagram on the board, and it was a cake. And he said, we have human, uh, SIGINT, and TECINT. We need all three pieces of the cake for this to work. So again, people, and this is why just pulling out of Afghanistan and expecting to, to continue to keep uh, the area safe and secure with no boots on the ground and just remote drone strikes, it's, it's actually just totally infeasible. It doesn't work. I was wondering, uh, based upon your comments, that we did away with the draft about 40-odd years ago. And as a result, we have a very minimal number of people in Congress who have served in uniform and actually been in harm's way. And my personal take, having served in uniform and been in harm's way, uh, is that these people are just committing our forces without a clue as to what they're really doing. And uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Thank you. You know, it is, that is a big and actually fairly technical topic, but I will say there is a, an argument to be made that the pro, a professional military has some advantages, but the cost is, uh, as you say, a kind of divide between the civilian and military components uh, of our society, which has a number, I think, of, of ill effects. Um, the decision-making in Congress is one of them, but also public support and public appreciation. And even though, Christopher, Augie, you didn't ask a question, you know, the public service announcement that uh, you make uh, uh, to say you play a character wounded in war, but you support them, and that is really uh, a service of its own to bring to life. And the work that I've done in the field, I have no military background, but I've been out there. I've been seeing it. I've been recording it. I've been researching it. And I think that the people such as yourself could taking time to come here tonight uh, and, and become more familiar and educated with what's going on. I think there are a variety of ways to really be part of an informed citizenry that contributes to a strong and, and sensible uh, defense policy. You don't need to be in uniform to 
to serve. So I guess I would just like to push back a bit and say it's incumbent upon all of us, whether we've worn the uniform or not, I think, to be uh, well-versed in this. And I think there are some actually unfortunate things occurring in Congress to the effect of not realizing that just by blindly voting pay raises and refusing to close military bases, they're actually hurting the military because money is going for things that are depriving the troops of the needed readiness. And we have a very serious problem in that regard. Yes, sir. This is more of a micro-macro question on the region. And first of all, everything that we've done in the Middle East has turned out to be a failure. When Bremer went into Iraq, getting rid of the army had created so much indifference between the local population and created all these IUDs and all these issues that Americans died for because I believe it was mismanagement at the senior level that didn't understand what was going to happen when they let the army go. Then we go into Iraq, excuse me, uh, Afghanistan, which is an ill-fated project. And now Libya, which I was hoping was going to become the major importer of uh, petrochemicals in Saudi Arabia would be diminished, but they didn't even put that plan in place. Now, um, ISIS is going into Northern Africa. Why is it that American government seems to appear to think locally when there should be thinking internationally on a, on a larger scale? Because nothing seems to work. I think this is I appreciate what you're you're saying and I think that this is is part of the public perception and conviction that we don't know how to do anything right. I think what what we've been through in these last 13 years has been yes some adventures of hubris some uh, maximalism, some minimalism, some unilateralism. <laughs> you know it's like our pendulum swings and we can't find the right the right place, the right mix. And I think it's fostered a, a sense that we, you know, we might as well stay home because we can't seem to get it right. Uh, so I, I sympathize with the sentiment that you express, but I do, uh, I guess, and I mentioned the the places, the Philippines, the Colombias, which you could be dismissive, but I actually was a lot, of, I spent a lot of time in Colombia and that gov- government was about to fall and the FARC was in control of about, half of the country. And it was quite a dire situation. Their defense minister was in jail on drug corruption uh, charges. Half of the government was uh, under investigation. It was a very bad time and they have pulled back in an extraordinary way. Um, I was was covering Latin America when it was entirely uh, governed by military or non-democratic governments. And it has, has become a very democratic region. I think the Middle East has a very long road to go. And I would not for a moment say that we alone could make Iraq turn out right. But I have I have spoken with enough Iraqi Sunnis over the year that I am convinced, and my, my grand colleague Ben Conable, who's also spent quite a bit of time uh, there with them, they don't want a separate country. And many of them acknowledge they're not going to kick out or liquidate the Shia. They have got to come together, Sunni and Shia, and make a country uh, uh, work. And I think that is still the path they would prefer to a divided 
uh, country. Many people, you know, brew it to this idea of let's just have it fall into three pieces. Uh, and, and even the rational Kurds understand that is not the time for Kurdistan statehood is not now. Uh, but we have to have strategic patience and we have to avoid the critical errors, which obviously have been made. And now we're back at it in Iraq. And I think it's very important that we understand uh, it's got to be a long-term project. And I'm not sure the country is up for that. Uh, but a long-term project doesn't mean 100,000 combat troops. I, I'm a little bit dismayed when I hear the president use the no boots on the ground uh, uh, phrase because we have boots on the ground. They're advisors. And my entire pitch here is basically, what are the limits and promises of an advisory and small footprint approach? Because at the end of the day, if we can't help these countries secure themselves, then we're either committed to a permanent police action, you know, drone strikes when we feel there's a dire threat to our security, or simply becoming an ostrich and hoping someone else will come and take care of it. And unfortunately, in this scenario, that someone for Iraq will be Iran. Question in the back. Thank you. Yeah, I was wondering if you could comment on the internal culture. You've always kind of heard special forces, quiet, quick, but you, with the ops tempo, the numbers changing in the past 13 years, as well as, you know, some of the politics that come out over these tell-all books about like the bin Laden raid, or I think there's even a tongue-in-cheek headline in the, the Onion, um, the Navy forms specially team joint tell-all book or something like that. But just the change, in, if there's a change in the culture of the type of troops that are recruited to serve. Yes. I'm glad I'm getting all the hard questions tonight because it's good. I mean, it's important. And I, when the latest um, uh, SEAL uh, came forward to talk about his role in the bin Laden raid, and there was a lot of press, and I did, I got a, a reporter uh, called me and I said, you know, the the big problem here is it. It destroys the team fabric because the minute they are out there saying, I did this, they denigrate their team because that is really the core of this whole thing, to take 12 guys or 16 guys and go out into the hairiest uh, places you can imagine and come out alive. And that more than was it legal or not, that's really what hurts this enterprise. Um, are there more egotist now than then. I mean, you recruit a certain kind of guy and there is, I think there's a special kind of SEAL profile, but I actually heard from a retired SEAL four star the next day when my, my quote came out in that reporter's story and he, he just said, thank you. Uh, thank you for making that comment. But, um, you know, there's, there's a sense, a kind of grievance that, well, you know, the movie was made with the support of the Pentagon. Uh, senior officials are out there talking about it. Senior officers are out there talking about it. But frankly, that's just a lack of discipline. Because if you join the military, you're in a hierarchy. And the top guys get to do and say things. And you're at the rank you're at. And you need to do what you're told. So I don't have a lot of uh, sympathy for their grievance, frankly. I would like very much to find out what is done about educating yourself in culture, history, and also uh, trying to combat corruption when you go into the military, special forces, or whatever organization is sanctioned by the United States, for instance? 
Um, I appreciate your question because I, I usually, when I'm giving my soft 101, uh, I note that this largest component of special operations forces, the Green Berets, are actually required to become proficient in one or more languages. And this is vital to the work they do. They're assigned to a given region. Many of them will serve their entire career in that region. Uh, and some of them lamented this, this heavy investment in Iraq and Afghanistan. They had to pull some from Asia. They had to pull some from Africa. They had to pull quite a few from Latin America, from the seventh uh, group. So they began to lose some of that uh, uh, language and the cultural knowledge because those repeat deployments are really as much about gaining a knowledge of the country. I watched, and this is one of the things in our report, and there's a, a, a list in the back in the last chapter of all of the things we're dismantling now uh, that we built up to learn culture, history, language, uh, the ability to work with a um, USAID team out in the field. All of this is being dismantled. And the plea in this uh, chapter is you're destroying your seed corn that's going to enable you to regenerate the capability when you need it. Not that we don't have to have budget cuts and reductions, but uh, there's a wholesale uh, loss of some of that capability. The corruption point, I would just say, and this is what why I made the comment about the development model. We threw a lot of money at Iraq and Afghanistan, and it directly fueled corruption. And it's less about building things than about teaching them how. You know, teach a man to fish, don't give him the fish. So, so I think this is where the model is really in need of some scrutiny, and that's the part of the corruption piece that has most uh, captured my attention. Question to the speakers, right? All right, you, you talk about soft in a broad term, like they're all purple suitors. How do, what, how do inter-service rivalries come into play? And then overlay that with the CIA ops that are on the ground and uh, civilian contractors. And so we have a whole bunch of different folks involved in similar uh, tasks, I would think. Mm-hmm. Well, the biggest rivalry, I suppose, is the, the SEAL and the Special Forces, probably in, inevitably. Although within the Army Special Operations, there's the Green Berets and they're the Rangers. So there, it's, there are subcultures, it, all of these little tribes. And in fact, John Allen, who was the commander over in Afghanistan, literally called them my soft tribes. And he would get them all together every week. And then finally, they developed a command that pulled them all together, which was a very important, what I, uh, the process of maturation of these last 13 years is very important. But those commands that they formed were joint commands. So you had all the flavors in there together in these headquarters commands. When they're out on the ground, they're generally a SEAL team or a special forces team or a Marine team. But you know who's the integrator is the Air Force, right? As I mentioned, you have a combat controller uh, on the ground uh, with every one of those uh, teams. And I, I was very pleased to see, you know, they wear one uniform, these new uh, camos that they have, camouflage fatigues out there. And unless you are skilled in reading the emblems, you know, you just say, okay, they're all one team. They all have that same uniform on. Thank you very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.